Hey everybody, Matthew McConaughey here, talking green lights. You are listening to Trey Elling. Books on pod, green lights. The red and yellow ones eventually turn green. So can we all go out there today, tomorrow, and the day after that, creating and catching more of them for ourselves and others. In the meantime, in all times, let's just keep living. Hello readers, Melissa Mayertz is a former editor at Spin and Rolling Stone, a former staff writer for Entertainment Weekly and the LA Times, a former supervising producer on HBO's Vice News Tonight, and a founding editor of New York Magazine's Vulture website. She's also the author of the new book, All Right, All Right, All Right, The Oral History of Richard Linklater's Dazed and Confused. Melissa, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm good, thanks. It's nice to talk to you. You as well. So, Melissa, what made you want to take such a comprehensive look at Dazed and Confused? Well, I knew that there would be good stories there just because it was kind of a hinge point in so many people's lives because it was the first studio movie that Richard Linklater had done and it was the first movie a lot of people in the cast had done or first breakthrough movie for a lot of people. And I'd heard that there were a lot of good stories about the cast partying behind the scenes. So I just knew there would be good stories there. I was also interested in this idea that Richard Linklater wanted this to be an anti-nostalgia movie to the extent that he even has a character say that the 70s obviously suck in the movie because I thought how interesting that it's become such a nostalgia movie for so many people it makes people nostalgic not just for high school but for the 70s and now I think a lot of people watch it because they're nostalgic for the 90s so I think going into this I thought how did this super anti-nostalgic movie become one of the most nostalgic movies of all time for a lot of people that was one of the more surprising things that I read in these 400 or so pages What did he mean by that? Because it's one thing to say that, yeah, the 70s sucked, but when you are filling your movie out with 70s style and 70s cars and the laid-back nature of the 1970s and all this incredible music, it seems like the opposite is bound to happen. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. You think about the 90s as being a time when music from the 70s was really popular, but that didn't really happen in a mainstream way until later in the 90s. And I think when he was choosing these songs, he thought... Some of these songs are kind of intentionally cheesy. Some of them I'm using for ironic usage. I'm not sure that he knew that people were going to celebrate these songs in the way that they ended up doing. And you look at same with the costumes. You know, what we think of the 70s in a lot of ways, the movies that I think of that glamorize the 70s have a lot of jewel tones and look kind of have this shiny new feeling to them. The costumes in Days to Confuse don't really look like that. There's a lot of browns and a lot of what I thought of in the 90s as being kind of thrift store looking 70s. But one of the things that Linklater said to me was that it's kind of impossible to make an anti-nostalgia movie because the nature of cinema is nostalgic. Even if you put something on screen that you think visually or even in terms of the music isn't all that attractive, people are going to automatically see it in a more glamorous way. So people who hear oral history for a movie assume that you're at least speaking with the director and some actors, maybe a couple of other people behind the scenes. Just to let people know how comprehensive a look this is, how long did this take you and how many different people did you speak with that went well beyond those who are directly connected with Dazed and Confused? Yeah, so I talked with about 150 people. Not all of those people ended up in the book, but many of those people I talked to multiple times, interviewed them multiple times. And most of those interviews, each one lasted 
an hour to four hours. So it was a lot of hours of interview tape. <laughs> but it was really important to me to talk not just with the stars, but also to other people on the cast who were um, native to Austin, to people on the crew, to people who really knew a lot about the background and context that went into this movie. And this movie is very much an extension of Rick's own high school experience in Huntsville, Texas. You had an emporium back then, buying beer as a freshman. I didn't realize this until reading your book, that Pink and Mitch were Linklater as a senior and a freshman. So it's really cool to go back and watch that movie over the weekend and see them having a couple different conversations. Was there anything he pulled from his own life with this film that surprised you? I think the specificity of the details that came from his life were very surprising to me. Obviously, I knew this is a movie that a lot of people relate to in a kind of broad way. But Richard Linklater told me that, for instance, when you see Pickford's room in the movie, that's the room that when the parents see the keg being delivered and it busts up the party, that room came from his memory of his friend's room. The posters were the same as his high school friend's room. The chairs were the same as his high school friend's room. His friend even had that ice pick that Pickford uses to stop the door (laughs) from being opened. I mean, it's very, very specific. And the more specific it gets, it seems like the more universal it feels. And the early chapters of this book serve as a sort of mini biography for Linklater's life through the making of Days of Confused. Uh, That is through the first 31 years or so of his life, which, of course, includes the movie Slacker, his initial film. I learned that there was some resentment from those involved with Slacker that Rick got to be in charge of a big studio movie as a direct result of that other film, which was a very collaborative effort amongst a small number of people. Do you agree with those that are upset that they maybe didn't get to run with the ball a little bit more like Rick did? I wasn't there, so I can only rely on what people told me. I know that there are people who feel like they were major contributors to Slacker and felt like they were contributing as much as Rick did. Rick definitely doesn't feel that way. He says he had a vision from this movie from the very beginning. And I think, you know, this is what happens in a lot of situations like this, where you go from making a film with your friends for $23,000 in a very DIY way with local people in Austin to working with a major studio like like Universal on a $6 million budget. I think, you know, in hindsight, a lot of people feel like they contributed more than maybe they did. Maybe some people did contribute a lot and feel like they didn't get as much credit. I think it's just kind of indicative of how something like this grows from a smaller local project to a major Hollywood film. Slacker and Dazed were both shot in Austin. You expect that out of an indie film to be able to shoot wherever you really want to. But considering that this was a big studio feature with $6 million attached to it, how did they end up convincing the powers that be that Austin was the right place to shoot this film? Well, you know, I think Linklater was very smart to keep it on his home turf in Austin. I think he knew that he'd be able to hire a lot of his friends who had worked on Slacker with him to be in the crew. And I think he wanted to surround himself with people who had his back in terms of his own vision. He didn't want too many studio people coming in who could control his vision for this. And I think he was also smart to do it far away from the studio where they only had one producer who was on set every day, a guy named Jim Jacks, who was overlooking this whole thing. So I think Richard Linklater was very smart to keep it in Austin. We may get back to Jim Jacks here a little bit later, but I wanted to ask about Don Phillips. Who is Don Phillips and why is he so instrumental with Dazed? 
Yeah, so Don Phillips is this real old Hollywood character who has done a very good job in his career with discovering people who had never been in major movies before. The big one that he's responsible for is putting Sean Penn and Fast Times at Ridgemont High and making Spicoli such a memorable character. So he's really the guy who found a lot of the people for Dazed and Confused and kind of plucked them out of obscurity. The main one being Matthew McConaughey, obviously. He ran into him at a bar and told him there was a small part in Dazed and Confused. And then obviously that small part became one of the major things we still remember Matthew McConaughey for. So he had a real talent for finding people who had never been in movies before who he knew had star quality. It's funny, people compare Slater to the Sean Penn character from Fast Times, but you could make the argument yeah. that the Wooderson character is closer to Spicoli in terms of that lasting impression and just how much it impacted pop culture. Definitely. And even in some ways, his mannerisms and the way he looks, like kind of the hair. (laughs) (laughs) Who are some of the other up and coming actors that Rick and his casting team passed on in putting together this ensemble cast? It's hard to tell. There are differing opinions on whether they actually passed on people or if they were just talking about putting these people in the movie. But Alicia Silverstone, Brendan Fraser, Reese Witherspoon, Claire Danes. Claire Danes actually auditioned and Richard Linklater said she was fantastic, but he thought that she was just a little bit too young. It's amazing to me that they were, in addition to making these stars, people like McConaughey and Parker Posey and Ben Affleck, but they were also turning away some of that generation's biggest stars. So it was huge competition for this movie. Interesting that O'Banion came down to Ben Affleck, Cole Hauser, who of course ends up in this film as Benny, and then also Vince Vaughn as well. And speaking yeah. of Cole Hauser, Linklater told him just after his audition that the shoot was going to be just like a summer camp in Austin. And he was right about that. And you alluded to this a little bit earlier. What are some specifics about why it was so much like a 16 to 23 year old summer camp? When people told me stories about it, it reminded me of when you're in high school and you go away and stay in a hotel for like a speech and debate tournament and you're just kind of running wild without adults. (laughs) That's kind of how it (laughs) seemed. They all kind of got together at this hotel in Austin. A lot of the kids who were underage were drinking and smoking weed. They were all in each other's rooms partying all the time. Some of them were going out to the gun range and shooting guns. Like it just kind of felt like there was this totally unleashed feeling among the cast. And I think Richard Linklater was smart that he kind of told them it was going to be like summer camp because he created this situation where they all ended up following that almost as a rule that they created a lot of real chemistry between each other. And you can see that on screen. It really feels like these guys have been hanging out together and that they're friends in real life. And they were. You know, one thing that seems to separate Rick from his contemporaries is this willingness to help his actors to really find their characters. What lengths did he go to in helping the Dazed cast out? Well, you know, before they even got there, he sent them letters that basically said, if this movie ends up being word for word what's in the script, I'll consider it a massive failure. So he already set them up for wanting to contribute creatively to this movie. And he really encouraged them to bring things from their real life, to bring their real life experiences into their characters. And I think you see that from some of the improvisation. Like you see at the very end on the football field, Jason London is pretending to be a football coach and he keeps saying, OSS, only the strong survive. And that's something that came from a real coach at his real high school. Hmm. So they really were taking from their own lives. The friendships included Parker Posey and Joy Lauren Adams. They became really good friends on the set and both were actually adept improvisers as well. How was the latter exemplified during the scene where the senior-to-be girls were hazing the incoming freshmen? 
Well, I just think that Parker Posey and Joey Lauren Adams knew from the very beginning that this was going to be their chance to contribute creatively to this movie. So you look at, I mean, Parker Posey is just so amazing in the scene where she's hazing those girls. And one of my favorite lines in the movie is when she says, wipe that face off your head, bitch. (laughs) And that line was something that she improvised. It was a funny thing. It came from a Brecht play that she'd done where they had mistranslated from the German into the English, the line, wipe that face off your head. So she just shows you how she added to that scene. Despite the fact that he was a world-class a-hole in the movie, Ben Affleck is somebody whose work with Rick Linkletter has really resonated with him throughout his career. What impact did working with Rick have on Ben? Yeah, that was a surprising thing for me. You know, Ben Affleck says that he only has kept two posters from the movies that he's worked on in his entire life. And one of them is Argo, which obviously he won an Oscar for. And one of them is Dazed and Confused. And he called it one of the most profound creative experiences of his life. I think what happened for a lot of people in the movie is that it was a real chance to see how movies were made, not to just come out from your trailer and speak two lines and go back to your trailer, but really see the way that Rick worked as a director and encourage them to contribute too. So I think in some ways he credits it with him wanting to become a screenwriter and a filmmaker himself. One of Affleck's scenes involves he and the Cole Hauser character spanking the incoming freshman. Did they ever cross the line of performing a stunt and actually hurting the kids? Well, it depends on who you ask. Some of the kids and some of the crew members remember Ben Affleck hitting some kids too hard and bruising them and really hurting them. Ben Affleck insists that that absolutely didn't happen. And if they remember it that way, it was most likely a mistake because he says, even now that people will tell him how funny they think his character is. And he says, that's the difference between you and me. I don't think hazing is funny at all. I think it sucks. So it really depends on who you ask and how they remember it. Hmm, That's interesting. Well, when you think about the fact that the vision for this movie was originally something a little bit darker, perhaps there was not supposed to be that comedic tone when showing the hazing even back in 1992, despite the fact that things have changed so much even since then, that even back in 1992, it was more frowned upon versus where it would have been in the early to mid 1970s. Yeah, you know, I think that's one of the great things about Dazed and Confused is you can really watch it and get from it something totally different than someone else does. I remember when I was in the theater and my first year of high school watching this movie and hearing people laugh at some of those scenes and thinking, that's not funny. That's really messed up. And I think you can still see it that way. Or you could also see it as just a totally fun party movie. It really depends on who you are and maybe what your own experience in high school was. Well, it's like McConaughey's lines, what I love about them high school girls. I get older, they stay the same age. I mean, that's a straight up pedophile comment right there. But uh, taken in the context of that movie, watching it for the very first time, when maybe you were a little bit closer to that age, you see it as something a little bit more innocuous than you would 20 years later. Or maybe you don't. I mean, I remember seeing that scene for the first time and just thinking, oh, I hate that people are laughing at that. But now when I watch it today, I see there's more pushback than I remember. Like right after he says that, Sasha Jensen's character, Don, says, you're going to go to jail for saying that. So I think Richard Linklater really doesn't put the morals in a heavy handed way in the movie. But I think there is more pushback against some of those trickier scenes than I might have remembered the first time I saw it. Now, speaking of Matthew McConaughey lines, the most memorable three words in this movie are actually one word said three different times. It's the main title of this book. All right, all right, all right. This wasn't in the script. So how did McConaughey come up with this phrase, which he believes is the first thing he said on film for this movie that has stayed with him throughout his career? 
Yeah, so he has kind of told this story again and again about how he imagines this character being into drugs, cars, girls, and rock and roll, and that he's sitting there in his car with three of those things, and he's out to get the fourth. He's out to get the girl. That's when his character approaches Cynthia, the redhead in the movie. But what's funny about it is that it might have been the first thing he recorded, but it's actually not the first thing he says on screen. The first thing he says on screen is, all right, let's rock and roll. (laughs) So I think it really speaks to how much he remembers that line as the launching pad of his whole career. Like he thinks of this as the first moment um, that launched him into the actor that he is today. I think a lot of people remember Dazed and Confused as their origin story. We've talked about Joy Lauren Adams and Parker Posey's friendship. Did most of the female actors get along when making this film, or did things become a bit high school on the set? Well, I think things definitely became high school on set in all sorts of ways. Michelle Burke, who plays Jody in the movie, remembers that Parker Posey and Joey Lauren Adams weren't very nice to her. And she remembers being pretty upset during the making of Days because of that. Parker Posey and Joey Lauren Adams don't remember it that way at all. They just said that they weren't friends, but they don't think that they were mean to her. And I think that's very true to how high school works too, right? It's like you might ask somebody who the mean girls were, and they'd have very specific stories about that. And then you ask the people who have been named as the mean girls and they don't see it that way. There's also a lot of drama with this guy, Sean Andrews, who played Pickford in the movie and a lot of people didn't get along with him. So it's a movie about high school and it also had social dynamics that were kind of like high school behind the scenes. Yeah, let's get into Sean Andrews. At the start of the book, you note that a few members of the cast did not make themselves available to be interviewed by you for this book, including Mila Jovovich and Sean Andrews, who does play Pickford in Dazed. For anybody who hasn't seen the film in a little while, that's the guy whose parents realized he was about to throw a party when they left town, and they end up having to scrap that and go to the Moon Tower. Do you have any theories as to why both, but especially Andrews, may have skipped out on participating in this book? Well, there's a whole chapter in the book where everybody has bad things to say about Sean Andrews. Um, I think that's probably why he doesn't (laughs) want to participate. I think he knows. A lot of people remember him being really arrogant. People remember that his manager, before he even really was in Austin shooting this movie, sending out a notice saying congratulations to Sean Andrews for being the star of Dazed and Confused and everyone else kind of being like, but this is an ensemble movie. There is no star. So I think from the very beginning, people were kind of not oriented toward liking this guy. And people just remember him being really arrogant and kind of sabotaging other people's scenes and really thinking that he was going to be the next Robert De Niro, Marlon Brando kind of figure after this movie was released. And obviously that didn't happen. I remember being surprised when I first saw this film, considering that Jovovich had the most star power on the cast at that time, how small her part was, and especially when you remember that she was a part of the promotional poster as well. Why was her part not bigger than it ended up being? Yeah, so she didn't talk to me for this book, but she did say in an interview back in 1994 that she had talked to Richard Linklater and asked to expand her role. She said that she wouldn't accept this role unless she had an opportunity to expand it. And he remembers having that conversation with her too. But I think people who were good at improvising and were able to write the scenes for themselves and really getting along with the cast tended to thrive, like Parker Posey and Joey Lauren Adams. And other people were kind of left behind. And I know that she did write a scene that she wanted in the movie. And then other people remember that when that scene wasn't shot for the movie, that she kind of left in protest, that she was very upset. Regarding the party at the Moon Tower, 
first of all, was this something that was done specifically to pay homage to Austin, or was there another inspiration for having everybody gather around this moon tower, which obviously Austin has become very well known for as a result of the film? Yeah, so Richard Linklater actually didn't model it after the moon towers in Austin. He modeled it after the fire tower in Huntsville, Texas, where he grew up. And a lot of people I talked to from Huntsville for the book remember that all the kids would go out to the fire tower and climb this very precarious structure and kind of sit on the top and get high and drink beer. So I think that was the original motivation for it. But because they were shooting in Austin, the moon towers are kind of a stand-in for the fire towers. And perhaps an inevitable question with most high school or college party scenes, was there actual drinking and or weed smoking going on as they shot? Definitely, definitely. Everybody (laughs) seems to remember being high for one scene or two scenes. McConaughey says that the watch the leather line came when he was stoned. You can kind of see that his eyes are a little droopy in that scene. But it seems like everybody was having fun behind the scenes. Well, and also that very final car ride as well. You pointed out that I think it was... London and maybe Rory Cochran said at some point in the four or five fake joints that they were smoking is shooting that, that it tasted like somebody slipped the real thing in there. You can kind of see it in their eyes at the very end as well. At least that's what I'm going with at this point after reading this book. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Jason London said that it was the very last scene they shot. So he was like, what are they going to do? Fire us for smoking real (laughs) weed on set? (laughs) Speaking of the end of the movie, why is Matthew McConaughey partially responsible for coming up with a solution for how to actually wrap the film up? Well, because, you know, originally Pickford, Sean Andrews' character, was supposed to be with those kids on the football field at the end there. And then partially because Sean Andrews wasn't getting along with the rest of the cast, they replaced him with McConaughey. And it's kind of funny, you know, you think, why is this guy who's not even in high school, you know, he's in his 20s now, hanging out with these high school kids on the football field? It doesn't make a lot of sense when you think about it. But he's just so charming in that scene that it ends up really working. And his father had just passed away when they shot that scene. So his line, Just Keep Living, which is obviously a line that so many people remember from that movie now, came from him thinking about his dad and thinking that his dad would have wanted him to continue making this film. I touched on this a little bit earlier, Melissa, but in what ways did Dazed start out as a darker film and why did it eventually lighten up? Yeah, so when you look at some of the original draft of the movie, there's a lot darker things in there. You know, there's talk about the Vietnam War. There's talk about abortion. It's just kind of a heavier film. And actually, one of my favorite scenes got cut from the movie. There's a scene when two of the high school girls walk through a graveyard and they're talking about people who have died in the past and will anyone remember them in the future as they are now in high school. But Linklater told me that it was really hard after doing this really fun moon tower party scene to kind of go down into these darker moments. So ultimately it wanted to be a party movie and he thinks that's why we're still talking about it almost 30 years later. Rick is such a unique visionary as a storyteller. Is there any chance he could or would go back and recut the darker version? You know, so many people have asked me about that. I don't know if that footage still exists Hmm. anywhere, but I would definitely like to see it. I think he's probably done with it, but I'd love to see it. So there was an enormous amount of push-pull between Rick and Universal, the studio that originally financed this film, that manifested itself in a couple of different areas, music and then also marketing. Starting on the music side of things, what did the band Jackal have to do with the fight over the soundtrack for this film? 
<laughs> yeah. So obviously music is hugely important to Rick in this movie to the extent that the original idea that he had for Dazed and Confused was that it was just going to be a bunch of high school kids in a car listening to ZZ Top's Fandango for the entire movie. And then obviously it changed from there, but music was there from the very beginning of the first idea for this movie. So it was really important to him. And, you know, one of the executives involved in the movie wanted to break this band Jackal, who were kind of a hard rock band that were known for using chainsaws on stage and just had a very different vibe. <laughs> we're not a 70s band, obviously, but they wanted them to cover a song, We're an American Band, for the movie, to put it on the last half of the credits. So the producer, Jim Jacks, was kind of like, no one's going to care. It's in the last half of the credits. We can use this new band to promote the movie on MTV. This was a time when, you know, Wayne's World was doing Bohemian Rhapsody um, video on MTV to promote Wayne's World. So he thought a similar thing could be done with days. Um, but it was just kind of the last straw for Linklater and his fights with the studio because he was like, there's no way I'm getting a contemporary band to cover a 70s song. It's so inauthentic. So it ended up being kind of a breaking point where he and the studio were most at odds in the movie. Led Zeppelin's Rock and Roll was originally supposed to be the final track leading into the end credits. Why did that not happen as planned? Well, you know, Robert Plant wouldn't say yes. <laughs> so Linklater was really upset about this and actually ended up writing, you probably know this, in the Austin Chronicle, insulting Robert Plant there. So it kind of started this ongoing feud between Linklater and Plant over the years, them kind of being upset at each other over this movie. But, you know, I think it kind of works this way because you end up hearing Slow Ride and you've heard Slow Ride earlier in the movie. It kind of mimics the way you listen to music in high school where you end up hearing the same songs over and over again in the car and they might not be the song you would choose but they're the songs you end up loving just because you've heard them so much so it feels very true to high school so this is how ocd i got with this in watching the movie over the weekend melissa i actually paused the movie right where slow ride comes up at the end and played rock and roll instead slow, <laughs> so, slow ride is infinitely better and I, look led zeppelin's great i love the song rock and roll it doesn't make sense right there especially when you know that the song that's coming up is slow ride Absolutely. I mean, some people said that they actually saw a cut of the movie where they had Led Zeppelin there and they loved it. But I'm with you. I think Slow Ride is just so indicative of this movie. I mean, even now I hear that song and I think of Dazed and Confused. No question about that. How was Rick spurned by the band Kiss? Oh, <laughs> so originally they were going to do kind of a cross-promotional thing with Kiss because, you know, there's these Kiss statues in the movie, obviously. And right where they were going to do this radio show with Gene Simmons and Richard Linklater talking about the movie, Kiss decided at the last moment that they were going to pull out of this. And the reason that they gave was that they didn't want to be associated with drugs, which is hilarious <laughs> when you think about the band who's, you know, doing rock and roll all night and party every day. <laughs> and Linklater told me, a funny story that he was like, I don't even know if Gene Simmons knew who I was because he kept calling me Art Link Letter. <laughs> <laughs> that is great. Well, later I think the Kiss ended up cutting their own video using Dazed footage. So maybe they realized in the end that Dazed was a great movie that they didn't necessarily know at the time. <laughs> yeah, hopefully they did realize the error of their ways with that one. Now, regarding the marketing drama, Dazed really did capitalize on a shifting attitude toward cannabis in Hollywood and pop culture. Was Rick a fan of the direction that the marketing team took this movie in? 
No, he hated it. It makes sense to me in some ways because before this, you know, you think of stoner movies as just being a very particular type. There's usually like, you know, one or two potheads on like a buddy quest to find the perfect strain. It's really kind of cartoonish. And Dazed was the first movie that I remember where it wasn't just the stoner smoking weed. Everyone's kind of smoking weed and doing it together. And that it's not a big deal. It's kind of portrayed in this very natural way. So the marketing team thought there's no real star in this movie. It's an ensemble cast, and a lot of them are unknowns. The main way that we could market it is to make it a stoner movie. And Rick, I think, really thought that was kind of dumbing down what the movie was supposed to be. He wanted to market it as a high school movie. And I wonder how its success would have been if they had marketed it that way. Did the studio give Days and Confused a big L.A. premiere? It did not have a big L.A. premiere. And I think to Rick, he kind of felt like that was them saying, screw you. <laughs> yeah. And was the theatrical release much of a success around the country? So it was a modest success. You know, it made around $8 million on a $6 million budget, which is okay. It was pretty okay at the time. But I think for a studio like Universal, that at the same time was working on Jurassic Park and Schindler's List, it's not going to do anywhere near what a movie like that is going to be. So to them, it seemed like it was not a success. Why did this movie become a cult classic then? And when did those involved realize its magnitude as a film? Yeah, so I wonder if it had done really well, if it had been a big box office success at the time, if it would have become a cult classic. I don't think it would have. I think part of what made it so popular is that people discovered it by passing around VHS tapes, bootleg versions of this movie, and passing it around to their friends saying, hey, I think you're the kind of person who might like this. It felt personal to people, and they felt like they discovered it on their own. And I don't know if people would feel that personally about it if they'd just seen it in a theater with a ton of other people who were loving it at the same time. And now, obviously, you talk to people at Universal and they're like, oh, it was a great movie. <laughs> but I don't think they felt like that at the time. And I think Rick still thinks that they didn't support it as if they felt that way at the time. Speaking of, what was Linklater's Austin Chronicle letter? Oh, so he did a diary of his entire experience of working on Dazed and Confused. And it's so interesting. It's basically every grievance he had with Universal from the very moment he pitched it to the moment of its release. And it came out the week that Dazed and Confused was released. So I think he thought, I'm just going to write this thing in my local paper and no one's going to read it. But of course, someone immediately faxed it to people at Universal and Universal was really upset. I mean, I think it was a very bold thing for a first-time studio filmmaker to do to air your grievances so publicly that way and still hope that you're going to make another film with a studio. What does he think about that letter in modern times? I mean, I think he still feels like it's very honest. I think he's a little bit embarrassed about the way he conveyed that. <laughs> <laughs> As we've talked about, Rick did use real situations from his own high school experience in Huntsville, Texas and former classmates' actual names. Was anyone upset at the perceived exploitation of name, image, and likeness, or was everyone from his high school days pretty cool with it? Yeah, so the main person who was pretty upset about it is a guy named Andy Slater, who thinks that the character of Slater is based on him. And he convinced two other guys, a guy named Bob Wooderson and a guy named Ricky Floyd, who they did call Pink Floyd in real life, to sue Richard Linklater based on that. Linklater says those characters were not one-to-one -one comparisons with real people. He was more friends with those guys' younger brothers. He says that he didn't really know those guys too well. But it's kind of like, you know, when there's people who are a 
above you, a couple grades above you in high school, and you have this mythology surrounded by them, you know, and you kind of think they're cooler than they might be in real life. I think he thought of that in a way as a tribute to those guys, as a tribute to the people who were older than him, who he always thought were cool. Wooderson, Floyd, and Slater suing Linklater for name, image, and likeness, that just blows my mind. Because those were such instrumental characters in this movie who it seems like they would do the exact opposite. But then again, we're very different people from where we are at the end of our high school days versus 20, 30 years later. Yeah, well, and you think, you know, Slater told me that he'd show up for jobs now, you know, working in construction, and people would be like, now, are you actually going to do your work? Or are you just a total pothead? <laughs> um, I think he was upset over time that he felt like, yeah, I do smoke weed, but I'm not like that. And I'm not dumb like that. And I think he kind of felt like a lot of people were laughing at that character and that upset him. And final question, Melissa, this is an important one. What were you like in high school? <laughs> I think I was a lot like Tony in Dazed and Confused. I was kind of the nerdy kid who somehow ended up at the party, but probably didn't belong there. <laughs> <laughs> and right. You can probably tell that by the way that I write this book. <laughs> oh, hey, you know what? The high school nerds end up being some of the most successful people down the road, right? She is Melissa Mayertz, a former editor at Spin and Rolling Stone, former staff writer for Entertainment Weekly and the L.A. Times, former supervising producer on HBO's Vice News Tonight, and a founding editor of New York Magazine's Vulture website. She's also the author of the new book, All Right, All Right, All Right, The Oral History of Richard Linklater's Dazed and Confused. Melissa, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this very entertaining, informative book. Thank you so much. You asked great questions. It was fun to talk to you. And thanks to you for listening today. A reminder that you can check out any of our episodes at booksonpod.com. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave a five-star rating and review. Helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod. Slow.